Have you ever failed so many times that you began to blame everyone and everything around you? This week's guest, Dave Schmidto, shares his impactful story on how failure helped him create a reflective system to increase his humility. Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the Leadership Development Podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. Dave, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Absolutely. I'm excited to be here. Dave, I feel like I know you through social media, but it's been just amazing to talk to you before the show. I just appreciate you, appreciate your flexibility in this time of distance learning. But as usual with all of my guests, I love to hear leadership journeys. So if you wouldn't mind just explaining to the listeners how you became an assistant superintendent. Yeah, my, my journey has been long and winding. So I'm currently in my 21st year in education. You know, after teaching for one year is when I realized, man, I'm God's gift to this profession and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to lead a school. And if nobody's going to hire me, I'm going to start my own school. Literally after a year of teaching, went out and started work on my master's degree in educational leadership, finished it about a year, year and a half later. And after my third year of teaching, decided to go out and start knocking on doors, trying to get my first administrative job. Lo and behold, three years of experience, nobody wanted to hire me. I actually went on 16 job interviews that summer after my third year of teaching. 16 job interviews and did not get a single second interview from anybody. You would think I would have eaten some humble pie and realized, wow, maybe, maybe I've got some lessons to learn here. But no, I just became bitter, became mad and thought everybody's missing out. They don't know how amazing I am. So I decided I was going to go to law school. Started going to law school at night thinking I was going to be, become a lawyer working to actually advocate against school districts because of how flawed they were. They couldn't even see the greatness in somebody like me. After doing that for about a year, year and a half, human resources director in the district that I was teaching at called me into his office and said that he had heard about me. And I, this was a time I was working in a pretty large school district. And for the human resources director to call you and say, say he heard about you, it could be either epically amazing or epically humbling. It was the latter. He called me in and to basically say he heard that I had been making my rounds and that I was trying to leave the classroom and move into leadership. And he just wanted to give me some advice. And his advice was quite blunt. He just said, just to, to put it boldly, nobody necessarily knows who you are unless you're complaining about something. Right now, you're not even a great teacher. So there's no way you'll be a great administrator. Focus on what you're doing right now. And then doors will start opening for you. At first, it, it was a smack across the face, but it resonated with me. And I doubled down and said, I'm going to give up everything right now except for teaching. I'm just going to go out and become the absolute best teacher I can be. Went in and just started forming these amazing relationships with my students, my kids, fell in love with the profession again. And then lo and behold, doors did start opening for me. After uh, spending seven, eight years in the classroom, was offered an assistant principalship. Spent three years getting my assistant principalship while also working on my doctorate. The day after I got my doctorate, was offered a principal position and became a middle school principal, did that for four years. Then I was offered the opportunity to, to move from Michigan, where I currently live, down to Florida for three years to work in a turnaround school, to turn around a school that had been struggling historically, 18 years straight as an F grade in the state of Florida. Worked there for three years. That completely changed my world. And actually, now I work as an assistant superintendent, executive director, curriculum and instruction, basically supervising principals at a district up in Michigan again. And uh, it's been it's been a whirlwind and a humbling experience. And it took me realizing that my job was not to lead and manage and make everybody like me for me to actually be able to lead and manage people. 
I'm curious about the 16 interviews, and yeah. you've obviously probably gone through a lot more than that over your career, and I know a lot of people struggle with the interview process. So, you know, now looking back and reflecting on just the interview process in general and, and applicants coming in and trying to get to the job that they're aspiring for, what, what is some advice you have for them? Absolutely. It's, it's actually pretty simple. I tell everybody that your experience and your resume is what gets you the interview. Once you get the interview, stop selling your experience and stop selling the resume and be yourself. That's your opportunity to sell yourself. You know, that first question that people ask is always the same first question. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Talk about your experience. I lead off every interview with myself now talking about myself as a dad and my priorities and the things that I truly value outside of education and make myself relatable and personable. And that's what gets me opportunities, honestly. And it's the same thing that I look for when I'm looking to hire somebody else. When I uh, lead interview committees, whether it's for teachers or administrators, I ask two questions and I only ask two questions. I don't care what questions the rest of the committee asks. My two questions that I put any value on are, who are you? Again, trying to, to figure out who they are as a person. And then I ask at the end of the day, how do you decide if it's been a good day or a bad day? I simply want to know if people know how to reflect and if they have priorities that they use to place value on their days. That's it. So as a leader now, you know, as a director of, of a district, you know, how are you building leadership in your district and how are you pinpointing those who have the, the skills or maybe some potential to be a leader? Well, that's, a, that's an amazing question. So I, I came in as the outsider to this district, which is always an interesting place to be, yep. you know, especially when the position I came into as an outsider was a position where I'm basically number two in the district. And there are a lot of other people that have been there a lot longer than I have. And it's very tempting to, to come into a position like that and want to start wielding authority, starting to put myself on this pedestal, as opposed to looking down to, to truly try to figure out who I can support and who I can serve. I, I have a mindset where I do all that I can, and it's difficult at times, but to, to really lead with that strength-based approach, going out there, trying to look for the gifts that everybody has, as opposed to trying to find those areas that I need to try to correct and realign. And by simply looking for strengths, it's amazing the leaders that you'll find out there that have skill sets that you don't presently have. Mm -hmm. For example, before we started recording today, I've been involved in five large webinars that our principals were putting on for all the parents in the, in the community today. And I was blown away by our principals that were just relating to these parents and these students in ways that I never could. I told them afterwards, I said, I'm your goose to your maverick. I'm just going to sit in the passenger seat and, and tell you where to go and let you drive. If I look back on it, probably five, six years ago, I wouldn't have been comfortable doing that. I would have been trying to step up front, trying to answer all the questions. And I would have felt like it was my responsibility to always be the person in the spotlight. But by pulling myself back and allowing them the opportunity to shine, it's amazing how much more I'm able to see and the, the potential I'm able to see in, in others. Let's talk about the movement from not only states, but then, you know, advancement in your career. How is it going to a new setting and trying to be a leader, you know, in, in a new building or in a new district? I mean, like, how is that as far as creating a vision and, and really trying to establish yourself in that leadership position? It's hard. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's hard and it's humbling because we all have our own biases and our biases are all based on our experience. So anytime you leave a building to go serve in another building or a district to go to another or state to state, you come in assuming that what you did prior was the right way to do things. That's why you did it. And you enter in a new culture, you enter into a new building, a new environment, and it's very easy to start judging and assuming because they're doing things differently, they're doing things wrong. And to try to correct or to change or to realign something that's been working just fine. 
And so bringing who you are and trying to assimilate to who others already are can be a struggle at times. And it's something that I'll be honest with you, my last job was extremely difficult for me. So for those people that are listening, I'll, I'll describe myself. I'm a 42-year-old white man with four kids who grew up as a military brat. The last job I had, I was asked to serve as an elementary school principal. I'd never once worked in an elementary school. I've always been middle school. In an elementary school in inner city Florida, a state that I am unfamiliar with, an inner city school I'd never been a part of before. My, my building had 94% uh, free lunch with 40% of the kids uh, having at least one parent incarcerated. That is not like me. It was very easy for me to walk into that school uh, my first couple days and just start casting blame for the struggles that school had endured for 18 consecutive years and start finding fault with the teachers, the administration, the past, the history, and to come in and say, listen, I know what I'm doing because I came from a suburban school in Michigan. So my way is right because I've never seen these struggles. Right. Whew. It doesn't resonate well. I'll be honest. People don't listen to you. They don't. They tune you out when you come in with your arrogance and your experience because they've got their own experience. Mm -hmm. So um, that first year down there was hard. I spent many a days, honestly, literally crying on the back stairwells, feeling completely alone and isolated. And it wasn't until somebody actually discovered me on one of those stairwells one day crying and realizing how hard I was taking it. And they realized that I was a person too, sure. for me to realize that they were people and uh, connect with them on a, a real level and a personal level that we were able to start forming a team and I was able to assimilate to them and help support them and guide them as opposed to always trying to manage and lead them. Yeah, so what are some strategies that you use once you've got a lay of the land and you know, what were some things that you did to get the staff behind you? So I, I'm a huge, huge proponent of honesty, transparency and using honesty and transparency in the reflection process. So I think oftentimes in situations like that, where the school I was I was in, and even the district I'm in right now, we have issues with those on the outside, the the people in the suits that come from the Capitol or other places that are there to wag their finger at us and tell us how horrible we are, and we want to push them as far away as we as we can. Those people though are trying it to come in and, and help us and to serve us supposedly because they feel like they have the right answers. The only way we're ever, ever going to convince them that we have it all figured out and that we can chart our own course is for us to be completely honest and vulnerable and transparent. If we try to sugarcoat things, sweep things under the rug and act like there are no issues, then they're going to keep coming in and pointing out our issues. We have to own them. We have to say, yeah, here's, here's where we're struggling. And the only way we know we're struggling is to constantly be assessing ourselves regularly so that we don't have to depend on somebody else to assess us. I'll just talk like right now in the world we're in right now, standardized assessments, state assessments are uh, a trigger word for a lot of people. We hear state assessments, summative assessments, and the hair in the back of our neck bristles. But the only reason we have those big assessments is because the experts don't believe in our ability to assess our students accurately. So they say, we'll come in and we'll do it for you. If we were honest and we we're open to say, here's what we're struggling and here's what we're going to do about it, they would back off because they would trust our decisions and they would trust our judgment and they would see our growth. So one of the things that I try my best to get teachers to do and principals to do and for myself to do is own our strengths and also own our weaknesses. We have to be honest enough to assess ourselves, be transparent with our successes, and to share it with the world. No, I love that. So I know you because of a book that you wrote, <laughs> which is Bold Humility. Yeah. Uh, for our listeners who may not have read your book, can you just give a quick synopsis to our aspiring leaders? Yeah, that's a book that was an evolution. It's not autobiographical, but it takes a lot of the lessons I've learned through leadership puts them into action and talks about some, some actual stories and some things that I learned 
as a leader starting off, somebody who started off extremely arrogant, who thought I, I was elevated to my position because of how great I was. And if everybody else just wants to be great, they need to do things the same way I did them to a guy that realized actually true leadership comes from humility. I, I tell the story in that book about those 16 job interviews and why I didn't get the job. I give practical strategies for empowering staff members to celebrate each other, to take risks, to look me in the eye and say, no, I'm not going to do it your way. I've got a better idea. And for me to allow it and to own it and to uh, encourage teachers to go do things better than I ever did so that our students can be better students than I ever was. And you have another project that just started your podcast yeah. called Lasting Learning. It's fun. I always <laughs> hear in the origin story of fellow podcasters. So how did that project start? You know what? This is this little project has been an even bigger evolution probably than, than anything I've ever done, probably because it follows my own journey. The podcast started off with me talking to myself because I thought everybody else would want to hear me speak. And it was simply me talking into a microphone, pontificating all of my wisdom once a week. Lo and behold, nobody would listen to it. Nobody cared. It was Schmidt's arrogance, Schmidt just talking about how smart he is or his, his newest idea, reading my own blog post, whatever it was, nobody cared. And then about six, seven months ago, I decided that I was, I was just going to silence myself, put myself in the back door a little bit, the back seat, and start talking to other people that are way smarter than me, people that could inspire me, people that I knew could make me better. Um, and I just started to start recording those conversations. And uh, I've had some amazing people on the show who I truly, I reach out to people that I want to hear from, mm -hmm. that I know the podcast is an avenue for people to be, to be willing to sit down and talk to me. That if I just picked up the phone and called someone and said, hey, can we just chat for a little while? Odds are they're going to say they're busy. But if I say, hey, you want to be in my podcast? They're willing to talk. Mm -hmm. And now I just share those conversations with people. And it's amazing how much it has uh, resonated with others who just pick up the conversations and the journeys and hear other people that we admire, that we look to as heroes and say, wow, they're real people too. They're real people that, that they can relate with. So on social media, I always see something with a bike. Even, you know, as we're talking behind you, you've got <laughs> pictures of, of bikes. So yeah, what is the story behind the bike? And is there a metaphor that you relate to or where did that come from? Yeah. So a, a lot of times you'll, you'll see me with the, the tag lasting learning and it comes from my, my time in the classroom, actually. So I was a language arts and social studies teacher taught for seven and a half, eight years. And I, I thought I was a, a good teacher, but as I've looked back on it now, 12, 13 years later, I realized how much I missed, how much, man, I, I could have done so much better. And I know that because I, I would have, I'm going to get emotional here. I, I have students now who I see online, who I track down on social media now, they're 27, 28 years old, who tell me stories of things that they remembered in my class. And it's nothing that was intentional on my part. They forgot all the stuff that I put all my heart into and all this blood, sweat and tears into. And they remember these other moments, these moments where I proverbially ran alongside of them and just let them do things their own way. You know, as a dad, so I told you beforehand, I've got four kids. I've got some things that I want my kids to remember forever. And very little of it has to do with content regurgitation, facts, just memorizing stuff. I want them to know how to be good people. I want them to have respect. I want them to know how to love well. I want them to, to have these skill sets that endure. And I use the metaphor, it's like riding a bike as a metaphor for learning that lasts. You know, we can teach a kid to ride a bike when they're five years old and they'll remember it 50 years later. And it's not because bike riding is easy. As a matter of fact, bike riding is super hard. It's a complex skill. It requires gross motor skills, fine motor skills, balance, dexterity, foresight, short sightedness. But it's because of the process we, we use to teach kids how to ride a bike. It's letting them fall down, get back up. We've heard that metaphor before. It's having a cheerleader who runs alongside of them. And it's having somebody that eventually lets them go and just lets them grow. 
And I use that metaphor in a lot of my conversations, a lot of my talks, a lot of my presentations, because I think that's that's what could transcend education everywhere, is if we taught in our classrooms, just like we taught kids to ride a bike, run alongside them, teach them, and let them do. Lasting learning comes from doing, not from sitting behind a seat. So that's that's the metaphor. What are some practical strategies that you're using as a district leader to try and get teachers in your district to use the bike metaphor? Yeah, the easiest way, honestly, is we start small. So if you think about teaching a kid to ride a bike, you don't go out and buy a bike and then say, okay, you're gonna, I'm going to sign you up for the Tour de France next, next year. <laughs> when you're first teaching them how to ride a bike, you probably have training wheels on. You say, it's okay to go slow. I just want you to learn, learn the motions. When you eventually take the training wheels off, you say, let's just get to the next driveway. Then the next driveway. Then we're going to go around the block and I'm going to go with you until eventually you say, go out there and have some fun. You don't assign your kids practice laps. You don't say you have to go do 15 laps around the block to get better. You say, just go have some fun. And then you peek out your window and they're jumping curbs and riding no handed and doing a bunch of crazy things. And then they come in sometimes bloody and scabs all over. You say, oh my gosh, what epic trick did you try today? And then you encourage them to go try it again. That same thing needs to happen in classrooms with teachers. It needs to happen with students. You know, hold their hand until they get comfortable. Then when they're not even looking, you let go. <laughs> you just say, go. You don't pop in the room to surprise them with a gotcha evaluation. Mm-hmm. You ask them from time to time, wow, what epic trick did you try today? And then when they brag about the epic thing that they tried, you encourage them to try something bigger and better tomorrow. I love that. So with, you can call it distance learning or e-learning experience that's going on for all the districts across the country. What do you think the end product will be? Or is there something that you think is going to stay with us now on because of this experience? There better be. I'll be honest with you. If things look the same next September as they did last September, man, we have missed an opportunity. Uh, You know, I think simplistically, and we could talk about all the tech tools and um, how important relationships are and all that. But I think we, we've always valued some of those things. And I think, honestly, those are the, those are the things that will be eternal. But my hope is that we're going to double down on focusing on the focus. You know, what I'm seeing right now from a lot of teachers and a lot of places is this wrestling match over, okay, what are those essentials that I have to make sure my kids know right now? You know, I, I, can't, I can't just plow through the book anymore. I can't just teach them page 218 because I'm supposed to be on page 218 on May 1st. It's, man, I only have five weeks with my students. I'm only going to see them 30 minutes a week or whatever the case may be. What are those essentials? And then we're working on standardizing what those essentials are across grade levels and across classrooms and across districts. That's my hope right now, that in September, we've got this heightened sense of collaboration, this heightened sense of fidelity where we're all coming together saying, what are those non-negotiables? What are those essentials? So that we know what the kids need to know and we can focus on the focus. Dave, I know you have a new book coming out. Mm -hmm. So if you're willing to share, I'd love to know what that's all about and how it can help our leaders. Absolutely. So the the tentative title of the book is Making Assessment Work for Educators Who Hate Data But Love Students. And you know what? Shockingly, that's probably 90% of the educators across the the country today. (laughs) You know, data is another one of those words that we hear and we're like, oh, we, we cringe because it's another word that has been perverted. Data is not a bad four-letter word. It just happens to have four letters in it. But we use it now to slap labels on people and to judge people as opposed to using it to support, align, correct. So the book walks us through how we can better use data. First of all, how we can make sense of it. Uh, It doesn't teach stay nines and statistical deviations or any of those crazy terms. It, It 
boils it down to what's important, what's relevant, gives some practical tips for teachers in the classroom, gives practical tips for administrators, gives practical tips for evaluation. Uh, it helps evaluation and assessment truly make sense so that we can do something with it. For our aspiring leaders, maybe they don't have a title, but they want to make an impact on their campus right away. What is some advice you have for them? Oh, that's a good one. There's, there's so much that you can do. Number one, you can just go ask, what can I do today? That's number one. And you can do that with anybody. You can do it with the teacher across the hall. You can do it with the administrator in the office. And when you say, what can I do to help you today? There will be something you can do to help somebody today. And that's what's going to get you that opportunity. If you're that person that's out there looking for that label, looking for that title, and you want that reputation to go along with it, you've got to make yourself visible. You've got to be that person that's actually doing and serving. And when people see you serving, when people see you doing without the extra pay, without the placard above your door, then you get those opportunities. Yeah. Dave, I'm curious as far as your presence on social media, being an author, now a podcast, you obviously have a voice. When did you actually find your voice beyond just your campus? <laughs> I, I, I'm finding it more and more every day. You know, it's, it's hard. It seems like sometimes the louder your voice gets, the more people want you to shut up, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or they say, man, I, I hear you too much, which, which is true. But, um, my voice has evolved. The more you say, the more you put out on social media, the more you start to edit and refine who you really are, because people will criticize, scrutinize, you'll cr criticize and scrutinize yourself. When you throw something out there, you can get yourself caught in the game of, is this getting retweets? Is this getting likes? Is this resonating with people? As opposed to, is this something that I truly stand behind? Right. So that's something that has truly evolved with me as well. And you can see it if you were to look at follower numbers, when I became true to who I am, as opposed to trying to be that guy, the numbers, if you cared about those things, all those numbers improved. It was about five or six years ago that I, I first started playing the Twitter game and the Instagram game and the Facebook game by going out and just following my edu celebrities, my edu heroes, and retweeting everything they were doing and being in five or six uh, Twitter chats a week and just wearing myself thin, just trying to be everybody um, to everybody. Mm -hmm. And... It, it doesn't work. It right. doesn't work. Eventually, you have to just say, again, focus on the focus. What is it that you really care about? What hill do you really want to die on? Who is it that you are and what is it that you really believe? And join those conversations. I'd say probably last year and a half, two years, that's what I focused on. Truly, ever since Bold Humility came out and I started that, that project of working on Bold Humility and focusing on who I am as a person and making sure that I knew who I was as a person, my social media presence has changed as well. Can you just talk through the reflection process that you use? Because I think that's kind of the theme of a lot of your answers is, you know, you're trying to something, it not going well and you know, making some changes. And what, what is it that you do to, to go through that reflection process? So uh, I'll just be super transparent with you right now. So as we're recording this, it is April of 2020. Back in January of 2019, I hit a new rock bottom low for myself. I had spent the last, the prior three, four, five years living a, as a complete fraud to myself and everybody else had this big mask on this big facade where I felt like I had to have all the answers all the time. I was always right. Nobody could see any of my flaws. Nobody could see any of my imperfections. And it just got exhausting. And it got super hard to always walk around with that swagger when inside, you know that you're faking it all the time. So back in January, 2019, again, I hit this rock bottom where I had to go out and seek therapy, seek support, uh, find a counselor, get put on medication, found, found myself just truly depressed 
and struggling with anxiety in a very real way. And uh, it was probably March, two, three months later on that I got myself to the point where I was willing to admit that to other people and started sharing that on social media. I started sharing that journey and realized that truly just being humble and vulnerable and real and being more authentic as opposed to wearing this facade, acting like I had all the answers, it's when everything shifted for me. So right now my reflective process is that I have some some guardrails in my life, some people that keep me in check. And when they when when they see the BS coming out, when they see it, when they see me providing more answers instead of asking more questions, they call me out on it. Because reflection is a whole lot harder than evaluation. So I have other people that are that are free to evaluate me until I'm able to reflect on my own self. When I hear their words, when I hear them calling me out, I'm willing to own it a little bit more. No, that's extremely powerful, and I appreciate your transparency there. Yeah, absolutely. So, Dave, you know, if someone's listening, they want to connect with you on social media, how can they find you? Yeah, the easiest way is going to be to learn how to spell my last name, and then you're all set. So, Because yes. um, I'm just at Dave Schmidto everywhere. So uh, Dave's the easy part, but then Schmidto is S-C-H-M-I-T-T-O-U. So I've got my website is schmidto.net, at Dave Schmidto. To all, all the links, you can see the podcast, you can see the books, you can see speaking. All, all the stuff is right there, schmidto.net. Dave, I really appreciate your time this evening and getting to know your story. It's so impactful. And like I said, I, I absolutely love your vulnerability in this interview. And I really think the words that you spoke are going to be wisdom to, to some aspiring leaders. So I do appreciate your time so much. Thank you. I appreciate you as well, man.